to Counsel the Word, the podcast of the Center for Biblical Counseling and Discipleship. I'm your host, Keith Palmer, and today we're going to be talking about counseling from the New Testament letters. I'm very grateful to have with me today uh, Pastor Brent Osterberg, my good friend and fellow pastor. Um, Brent is the pastor at Living Hope Bible Church in Mansfield, Texas, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and also a contributor to the CBCD uh, conferences and uh, online content. So uh, Brent, so good to have you back for this conversation today. Thank you for having me, brother. I enjoy being here. And again, we're meeting over technology because of the coronavirus and uh, trying to shepherd our flocks and uh, so thankful uh, that we have technology to be able to minister to our own congregations as well as to other believers uh, outside of our communities and really around the world and, and also an opportunity to share the gospel of Christ uh, with people in need. And, um, and I think this podcast is a way that we hope that uh, all of you are benefiting uh, from the ministry uh, of our churches and our organization. And uh, so we're grateful for you listening today on the podcast. Uh, Brent, uh, we're going to talk today about uh, counseling from the New Testament letters. And uh, for those that are keeping up with the podcast, this is a series of uh, podcasts that you're doing on counseling from the different types of books in the Bible, what we sometimes call the different genres of the scripture. And uh, today we're talking about the New Testament letters. So uh, help us understand what are some of the unique facets of the New Testament letters. Yeah, thank you, Keith. I appreciate that. I would start out by saying that the letters are more prescription and the Acts, the book of Acts in the New Testament is more description. So that distinction kind of helps us, doesn't it? Uh, If you're looking at the historical narrative of the book of Acts, then that's telling us, you know, here's what happened. Here's what actually happened in the first century with Peter and, and Paul and the apostles and the spread of the gospel um, to, the, to the ends of the earth and in that context in the first century. But the letters now being written by the apostles and associates of the apostles, they're the prescription for the church. Individual churches, here's how you should live. Here are the commandments. Here are the things you need to believe and the things you need to do in order to give uh, honor to God as his people. And so you could say access description, letters or prescription. And in the same way, you could say that with regard to the gospels, that the gospels described Christ's life, death, and resurrection, and the letters build on the gospels to explain the gospels and what we read about Christ there, and then show the implications of Christ's person and Christ's work that was described in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so uh, there is a lot of explanation. You could say the Gospels are the description and the, the letters are explanation. So um, these letters are also situational. They're occasional, meaning they were written for a specific occasion. There's a book called How to Read the Bible as Literature by Leland Riken, and he says this. He says, the epistles, that's another word for the letters, the epistles are not essays in systematic theology, which the apostles sat down to compose in their studies. They are letters addressed to specific people 
and situations. So when we think about the letter to the Galatians, well, Galatians addresses legalism. It's right, written to this specific people about the issue of legalism. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, addressing division and licentiousness, right? Their, their license or their belief that they had a license to sin. First Peter addresses persecution and how to respond to persecution. So there's all these occasions and situations that these authors are writing to address to a specific group of individuals, a specific church or churches. Colossians addresses theological error that has been uh, directed toward the church. Jude addresses contending for the truth of the Christian faith. And the pastoral epistles address issues crucial to leading a church. So that's another facet of, of New Testament letters. But they're also, um, they also use argumentation. They build a case for a certain doctrine. Or they build a case for a, a characteristic of Christian living. You know, so you see a, a lot of um, so that's or for because, because this argumentation is being laid out in the text. And th- I found this very helpful too from, again, I've referenced this a number of times, but Duval and Hayes wrote the book Grasping God's Word. And they talk about the letters being written to be heard out loud and really one sitting to be heard out loud in one sitting. So there's a high degree of connectedness between the paragraphs in a letter. Just like um, you, if you received a letter from someone you love, you wouldn't break it apart in, in terms of your reading. It's uh, that comes from a, a quotation. I'll, I'll read this from Moises Silva in his hermeneutics textbook. It says this, what would one think of a man who receives a five page letter from his fiance on Monday? and decides to read only the third page on that day, the last page on Thursday, the first page two weeks later, and so on. We are all aware of the fact that reading a letter in such piecemeal fashion would likely create nothing but confusion. The meaning of a paragraph on the third page may depend heavily on something said at the beginning of the letter, or its real significance may not become apparent until the next page is read. So that's helpful, isn't it, as we think about uh, how the entire book, these letters in the New Testament, uh, they have this cohesion. And so we can't break it apart because um, there's, there's an argument, there's a, there's a purpose, there's, a, there's a, a flow that we don't want to interrupt. And so we have to remember that as we're seeking to interpret these letters correctly. Um, the letters are also highly theological, but at the same time, highly practical. And really, the two are inextricably linked. You can't have one without the other. And we'll talk about the importance of that here in a minute. And finally, I'd say it's easier in the letters to get application than perhaps with the Old Testament narratives, because the letters provide direct instruction and direct commands for the New Testament church. Narratives require more attention to the clues in the text um, so you can discover the main point of the story. So those uh, were, I know there's more, but we could, um, we could just kind of s- summarize letters in that way with those distinctives. Yeah, that's, that's a very uh, uh, thorough overview uh, uh, introduction for what we're talking about. And just to remind our listeners, uh, the, the premise behind all this is 
the biblical books in terms of the types of literature are all a little bit different, and knowing something about the type of literature and why they were written and how they are to be interpreted, you know, all of that is really the prerequisite to faithful ministry that's effective in counseling. And uh, so what I hear you saying is that we can't just parachute into a book sort of blindly and, and just go for it, that uh, understanding, like you're saying, the New Testament letters are more theological, personally written to a, in a particular context, a specific audience or person, um, that, that those things allow us to interpret the book uh, accurately and then to minister it faithfully. So uh, very helpful. So let's make that Absolutely. transition now. Yeah. Uh, so uh, now that we understand something of what the New Testament letters are like, give us some tips or pointers on how to use them uh, rightly and effectively in a counseling or discipleship ministry. Yes. Uh, so like I said earlier, uh, the, the theological weightiness of the letters and also the practical weightiness of the New Testament letters are connected. So when we're thinking about discipleship and biblical counseling, we can see the letters providing our counselees with this theological truth that's necessary to enable and motivate obedience to God. So you, you really can't have proper obedience to the Word of God, proper faithfulness to live the Christian life if you don't have that theological foundation. The two are, are really closely linked. And so the letters provide that foundation and then lead into uh, how we're to respond to that theological foundation as we live our lives. So it, it both enables and motivates faithful living. So I want to I give you an example of that if I could. So Colossians chapter 3 is one of the letters of, of the New Testament, and there is a verse at the very beginning of chapter three in Colossians that helps us see this principle in play. So this is what Paul writes in Colossians 3, 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Now, we often, when we think about that verse, we're like, okay, yes, I need to seek the things that are above I've been seeking the things of this world way too much. I need to seek the things that are above. But look at the, the theological foundation at the beginning of the verse. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. So we take that, that theological foundation. So spiritually speaking, what Paul is saying is that we've died and we're raised with Christ through faith in him. So now we have the ability to actually seek those things that are above and we can also be motivated with gratitude because it's through Christ that we have been saved. We've been made new. We're risen with him. And so we have this now, this motivation, this gratitude in our hearts to actually seek the things above because of what he's done for us. And the same can be said of texts like Philippians chapter 2, where that famous passage that talks about Jesus coming from heaven to earth, to the cross, and him humbling himself and, and becoming a servant for us. Uh, that's referenced a lot whenever we hear sermons or in books, but a lot of people perhaps don't know that it's connected to the unity of the church and the humility of the church. Because right before that, we read this 
in chapter 2, verse 2 in Philippians. Complete my joy, Paul writes, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. That's unity. And how do we get that unity? He tells us next in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Then he says in verse 5, the very next verse, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And it gets into the, that passage about Christ coming from, from heaven and taking on the form of, of a servant, right, and becoming one of us. So we look at Christ here in this text, and he is an example of how to embrace humility. He shows us what humility looks like. He shows, what it, shows us what it looks like whenever we think of others as more important than ourselves, because he did that for us whenever he died on the cross for our sins. And so there's this theology that's highly connected to humility and then the unity of the church, as Paul writes. Also, I'd say that these letters provide us with deep truth, the deep truth of Christ. They're very Christocentric. They tell us deep truth about Christ's person, who he is, and his work, what he's done, so that our relationship with him can thrive and we can be transformed into his image as we behold his glory in the text of Scripture. So this is really practical with your, your disciples or your counselees, helping them understand that, like 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, that as we behold the glory of the Lord, then we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Spirit, Paul says. So how do, they, how do your counselees behold the glory of the Lord? By paying attention to Scripture, by studying Scripture, by meditating on Scripture, and seeing Christ and the gospel laid out so clearly in, this, in the New Testament letters. And so what happens is when we concentrate on Christ in the text, who he is and what he's done, that the Spirit uses that to grow us and to make us more like Christ. And then the more we know about Jesus, we also are able to relate to him better. Um, we can worship him with more precision. We can enjoy him and, and serve him with greater devotion. And so uh, the, the Christ-centered nature of the letters really is important for that as well. Uh, think about how Colossians 1, 15 through 18, helps us respond appropriately to Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, Paul writes, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So you see that in that text, he's supreme. He's Lord over all. And so that helps you see and helps your counselees and your disciples see Jesus is not just one of the guys. He's not just our, he's not our buddy. He is the Lord of the universe. And this reveals glory and authority from Christ. And, and that compels you and I and our counselees to bow before him in the way that we live. Now you can think about his, his work as well, not just his person, but his work. Galatians 3.13 tells us that that Christ became a curse for us. 
He became a curse for us. When he died on, on the cross, he took upon himself the wrath of God for all the sins we've committed. He felt the weight of his father crushing him. And so the extent to which he humbled himself for us as rebels and wretches, it helps us, helps us stand in awe of him, helps us to be humbled and helps us to be called into adoration of who he is and what he's done. And so that's very practical as well. One more thing I'd say, Keith, about um, how we can use the letters in discipleship and in counseling is that the letters are written to churches. Sometimes we forget that. But Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, the church in Colossae, the church in Thessalonica. And even Peter is writing to several different churches, right? And so is John and, and their epistles. But then you've got um, individuals in churches that Paul is writing to as well with, with Timothy and Titus and, and Philemon. They're not churches, but they're individuals in churches. So the church is really kind of the soil of the New Testament in a sense. And so when we think about that, our counselees and our disciples need to remember how really practical the letters are for telling us how to interact with the body of Christ, how to serve with the body of Christ, how to live together in the community of faith and what that looks like. That's such a crucial part of our lives as Christians. We don't live as individuals separate. We live together with the body of Christ. And, and we really need to hear that as, as American Christians because we tend to have an individualistic mindset. And even in our day and age, it's so easy for us to, to just be plugged into media all the time and forget that the gathering and the, the uh, community of faith is, is so crucial to the New Testament text and the letters in particular. So we need to turn to Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, and 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 26, and, and see that everybody in the body has an important part to play, that everyone has, uh, has responsibility and gifts to use so that we all are functioning together to help the body be strengthened, to become healthy and glorifying to Christ as we uh, are grown up into mature manhood, as, as Paul says in Ephesians 4. But also, just highly practical, I'd, I'd turn you to this, too, just to help counselees and disciples see just specific one another commandments that we're to obey in light of the gospel. And so Romans 12 has many of these. One of my favorites for, for the church and for us as believers is Romans 12.10. Love one another with brotherly affection. And then listen to this, outdo one another in showing honor. And so there are more of those. There's contribute to the needs of the saints, verse 13, seek to show hospitality, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. It's the, there's lots of these really kind of bullet pointed one another's of chapter 12 in Romans. And then it goes on to say, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And so there are texts like that, like Romans 12, like um, other chapters like Ephesians chapter 4, Colossians chapter 3, that have a lot of these very precise instructions for how we are to operate inside the church and live together in harmony as God's people in view of the gospel. So, so helpful, brother. Um, and I'll just say a hearty amen to that. 
we counsel the word, we counsel the scriptures, we counsel different, all the different types of books from the scriptures and the New Testament letters written particularly to the churches, to New Testament believers, assist us uh, in seeing the work of Christ, uh, the application of the work of Christ applied to really every aspect of our life. So, uh, so, so well done. Thank you so much for being with us again. Thanks for having me, Keith. It's been a pleasure. Well, for more information about Pastor Brent Osterberg or the ministry of Living Hope Bible Church, you can visit them on their website at lhbcmansfield.com. And for more information about the Center for Biblical Counseling and Discipleship, you can visit us at thecbcd.org.